Welcome to the Beyond the Box War podcast. This is your host, David Kaplan. In this episode, I interview Coach Ernie Nestor. He's coached over 50 years of Division I basketball and is coaching every one of the Power Five conferences. He served as the head coach at George Mason University as well as Elon. Coach, how's it going? It's going great. Going great. Great to be with you here and talk a little bit about the uh, the journey I've had in coaching, which is, uh, you know, I've been very, very fortunate. I actually started coaching in uh, 1968 in junior high school in West Virginia. So I've uh, had a lot of stops, coached high school in Virginia for a number of years. And then was fortunate enough to join Madison College in uh, 1976. Uh, a lot of people don't even remember that. It used to be the school. It was a girls school. It was transitioning into uh, co-educational at that time. And, uh, and uh, then the next year, they changed the name to the name that people identify with now, James Madison. And they were transitioning from Division Two to Division One. They had an assistant coach, and I was fortunate there. And then, of course, my journey's taken me to Wake Forest on three occasions and uh, University of California for three years, which was spectacular. And uh, uh, fortunate enough to be the head coach at George Mason and later at Elon. So, you know, it, it's, been, it's been a fun ride. It's been... Uh, Something that I never envisioned when I started. I just, uh, uh, you know, was hopeful of getting in college basketball. And then when you get into it now, it just keeps uh, uh, getting, uh, for me, it's changed dramatically, obviously. When you go back and think about those days in the mid-70s, uh, this was sort of coming off the time where Indiana just had the great successful uh, season undefeated, which has never been duplicated, which is amazing. And then again, what has also changed is the number of teams in the NCAA tournament and basically the, I guess, prestige that the NCAA tournament has acquired here as you've expanded it with the fields. Back, they had some really unusual numbers in the field and they didn't get to 64 to like the mid 80s. And then they start taking multiple teams from conferences. Um, I don't think anybody, uh, it's very easy to under impact or underestimate the impact that ESPN had on the NCAA tournament. When they began to show the first round games, which no one ever thought they would ever do, CBS would always go to the weekend games and very select games and usually always uh, major schools and so forth. And that had a tremendous impact on college basketball. And, and there's no getting around it. I mean, Dick Vitale has been significantly a part of that growth with ESPN and also college basketball and adding excitement. When he went to go when he would go to a game that was a big deal back in the 80s because that meant you were on national TV and ESPN is <laughs> in the early years they used to rebroadcast the games three and four times because their program was so limited they would mix it in with uh, a rugby in Australia or something at that time of year and then you would have the basketball games you play a game one night the next day the kids would watch it on TV two or three times which is a great kick for them but now today they just go on with more programming. So it's, it's really ESPN has evolved significantly. Coach, talk about growing up in West Virginia and playing at Alderson Broadus. Well, uh, I grew up in West Virginia and you know, as a, as a kid in the fifties and sixties, and this was, it's what I would say the golden era of uh, West Virginia basketball. Uh, my uh, Jerry West graduated West Virginia in 1960. And he was preceded by a great player, Hot Rod Hunley, who graduated in 57, and then Rod Thorne three years after that. So he had three really high-level players who were in-state kids 
who went on to play in the NBA and have uh, significant careers, obviously Jerry West having the most significant, Rod Thorne will probably, and Jerry West as well, outside of coaching as they were significant executives. Uh, Rod Thorne was a guy who drafted Michael Jordan, and of course Jerry West's impact in the game has been so significant with the Lakers, most recently with the Warriors, and he is now with the Clippers, who just won a game last night and are making a run in the NBA. So uh, he has, uh, you know, become one of the foremost authorities in basketball. But those, they were playing. We used to listen to them on the radio. I grew up about, about an hour from Morgantown and uh, actually saw one college game at West Virginia, which was significant when I was a senior in high school. So it wasn't, uh, not a lot of games were on television, but uh, it just created a lot of pride. Basketball was really a big deal. And sports in general, you know, small town America and so forth. And uh, had the opportunity to play in college and, you know, through that process sort of came to what I wanted to do and uh, which is coach and teach and so forth. Uh, uh, and was fortunate enough to begin doing that in West Virginia and uh, then moved to Virginia. Quite honestly, in West Virginia, what they were beginning to do at that time was they were consolidating high schools. They were taking two or three high schools, making them into one. So if you want to be a basketball coach, <laughs> you know, they're, 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 you know, the junior high jobs are available, but not many high school, the high school jobs are, are uh, uh, evaporating. So I got opportunity to move to uh, Virginia, Bassett, Virginia. And that was a great thing to go there and uh, become a head coach in high school when I was 24 years old. And, uh, you know, you learn, you learn basketball and had some really excellent young men, many kids I'm still in contact with today. So that's been fun. And uh, then of course, that's when I first saw ACC basketball. Actually, when I was at Elon, I was asked, you know, about the Southern Conference Tournament. And I said, well, you know, the first Southern Conference Tournament I saw was in 1966 and 67, because West Virginia was in the Southern Conference in those days. And the games were played in Charlotte. And we came to two of those after our season was over. And of course, Coach Giselle was coaching at Davidson at the time and had the great teams with Dick Snyder and Will Hetzel, Fred Hetzel rather, and uh, Dick Snyder and uh, Mike Malloy, some other players that were very significant in the history of Davidson, which has been elevated, obviously, with uh, Steph Curry's uh, performance in most recent years. But uh, Davis had a great, uh, great history in the 60s. It was phenomenal. And they were still in the Southern Conference. They since left for a little bit, came back. And in West Virginia, I think at the end of the 60s, they transitioned out of the Southern Conference. But it's always been a great, it's got the oldest tournament in the country. And, uh, you know, had a lot of teams transition through that league. So that was that. That was enjoyable to go back at Elon and coaching the Southern Conference. So I know you went on to earn your master's degree at West Virginia University. I was curious, were you a graduate assistant? And what made you decide to go and pursue a master's degree? Well, actually, it was because you got paid more money when you coached in high school. Uh, believe me, you got a $500 raise, okay? And uh, what I did was uh, my first summer out of undergraduate school, I went to graduate school and took 12 credits. As, you know, if you go back historically, 1968 was a peak of the uh, peak years of Vietnam. And I anticipated being drafted by the military. I got a deferment to teach. So I taught a year in West Virginia, continued to do my graduate work, went back the following summer and was able to complete it before I moved to Virginia. So I was very fortunate in the way things fell into place and, and got the master's degree. But initially it was not as a graduate assistant or anything of that nature, but I was full-time teaching and coaching uh, during the year. 
and uh, just going in the summer so and was able to get it because you could take, they call them extension classes in, you could take them at locales away from the university. They were just starting to do that. They had a branch school in, a, in Parkersburg, which was not far from where I was living in Ravenswood. So Luke Campanelli hires you for your first college coaching job at, like you said, at Madison, uh, before it was James Madison. And yeah. I'm curious, did you take a pay cut from being a high school teacher and coach for that? Actually, first yeah, actually I did. And uh, uh, that was, uh, that, that was, but I was very excited to do it. You know, I had met Coach Campanelli, actually, he and Mike Fratello were the original coaches there. And, uh, and they had recruited a player for me, Sherman Dillard, who now is, works at Iowa, who coached there was a Division II All-American. And then uh, after three years um, with Sherman there, they had an opportunity to transition to Division I. And that formula has changed. At that particular time, what it, you it took one year. So they, they had been to Division II National Championships a couple of years. So what they did is they had their one year where they were neither in Division II or Division I. That was my first year there. We played 12 Division One, and then the next year to become a full-fledged Division One member, all we had to do was play 75% of our games against Division One competition. And being in Virginia, there were you know many options because a lot of schools were doing that. And Old Dominion was going from Division Two to Division One at about that same time. Uh, we, they were they were a former Division Two national champion when Sonny Allen coached there. Rono College was a former Division II national champion in the early 70s. They transitioned down to Division III. And, and so there was a lot going on in Virginia. We were able to schedule Virginia. We played in Virginia's tournament. And uh, Virginia Tech, obviously, were the two big schools, just as they are now, as being in the ACC. But William and Mary, we played we play all the schools and say George Mason was just beginning to make that transition into Division I. It was much easier there. Then they came up with a formula which made schools wait almost seven, eight years to make the transition in where they would belong to conferences and play in the conference but couldn't play in a conference tournament. It was really uh, uh, because what was happening, everybody was going. Everybody wanted to go to Division One with the aspect of getting the payoff you got from NCAA. Now, originally back in the day, you got more money if you were able to be successful. Now the formula's changed a lot, but way back in the eighties, it was, it was really based on what you did in the tournament and uh, each school could really benefit from that. And, and, and so, so that was a big change that has occurred, I think for the good in terms of you don't have, uh, they used to say you have, you know, uh, $300,000 foul shots, kid misses a foul shot, the team doesn't advance. And the key was obviously to get to the second weekend and then, then the money really escalated at that time. Now, by today's standard, that's not a lot of money. But in those days, it was. And uh, that's what everybody was trying to get to. Uh, I always had the idea. I thought all the NCAA had to do was put more money in the Division II tournament and more teams would have stayed in Division II because they had a better chance of being successful. But they has never uh, – I couldn't get anybody to think about that as being a good idea. I always felt it was a great idea. You put a couple million dollars in the Division II championships and teams can win that by accomplishing the things that are very, very remotely challenging to accomplish at the Division I level. Now we have with George Mason, obviously, and VCU, uh, we've had some really major breakthroughs, but that's a, they're very few when you look at the number of years we've been doing this. Absolutely. 
you know, I'm curious back then, you know, in the seventies, but also kind of mid-major division one, what was the film and travel like compared to today? The, the film? Yeah. The film breakdown, you know, obviously you guys didn't have the well, synergy. Well, well, first or of all, the f- filming was, it was done on the, I don't know if you ever, ever seen, you used to get four reels for one game. Wow. It was very expensive to do. So I can remember James Madison, we only did select games. And, uh, you know, if you were on TV, now VHS was sort of evolving at that time. And also people didn't use beta, believe it or not. And even when I came to Wake Forest, and that was in 79, the ACC, we were still only filming select games. So did you live scout then? or? Oh, yeah, you could live scout. Now, live scouting in the NCAA didn't stop until uh, the last year was 93-94. That was the last year of live scouting. Oh, live scouting was great. Uh, it was tremendous. And, you know, I was at Wake Forest, and, and basically – uh, there was no limit to how many times you go see a team. So I could go through practice at Wake and leave at 5.30. I could be at a game at Carolina at 7.30. And so we went down there. I went down there a good bit and got to know Woody Durham very well because I was setting up Toppy Carmichael with him, uh, you know, watching games. And you not only go to see the Tar Heels, you go to see who they were playing in the conference was also would be a future opponent of yours. And that was an easy in and out. As you know, you've traveled I-40 enough to know that. Going a little further to Duke is more a little bit more complicated getting in out there, but uh, and then state obviously is a little further. And you know we live scout Clemson, you know we go up to Virginia. I mean we live scout all over the place because you could do it then. And then they basically said, well we're going to save money and blah 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 like this. But what's happened now is you have so many games. Of course, obviously everything evolves. <laughs> you know I always go back to the great Isaac Newton law. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And what has happened in the film is basically synergy has evolved, which, and I don't know if that is the only company who does it now, but that's become such a standard in college basketball. Oh, you got to have synergy, right? And everybody's got synergy. And now that's all the scouting. And, and to get synergy, all you do is just have something go up. On, on a satellite and you can pick that up. But it started just for the NBA teams and now it's transitioned for the colleges X number of years, probably 10 years, 10, 12 years ago now. So everybody does it now. I've, and that's, that's, you know, and then the breakdowns, the way Synergy breaks the games down are really great for scouting. Now, Carl Tracy hires you to be on his coaching staff at Wake Forest in 79, your first of three tours of duty. Yeah. You know, how did you two West Virginia natives get connected and what made him such a successful head coach at Wake Forest? Uh, first part of the question, I, uh, I really did not know Coach Stacy, And uh, uh, Coach Odom was leaving the position who I did know. I'd begun to become friends with him because he coached the high, he was a high school coaches, myself in Durham, and uh, we had worked various camps together. And in fact, we met at working at the camp at Duke, which U.B. Brown was running because he was the assistant coach at Duke at the time. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's a different, different era, you know. The, the, uh, and then we both worked at the five-star camp, which at that time was the standard of summer basketball, the high standard. And they had started with two weeks and evolved to four or five, Howie Garfinkel there. So you got to know him. And, and ironically, at the time, Matt Morris, who's going in the Hall of Fame this uh, – this summer, North Carolina Hall of Fame in Greensboro was a page coach. And they had just won the national, excuse me, the state championship in 1979. 
And we recruited a kid. I was coming down to Greensboro to recruit a kid, David DuPont, who was the most valuable player in the state tournament. And uh, he was, it was between us and Guilford. Guilford at the time was the NAI school, still giving scholarships. And we were fortunate enough to get David. And on my visits down to uh, recruit David, then, you know, I visited with Coach Tacey on a couple of occasions. And, uh, you know, he gave me the opportunity. And, uh, uh, you know, we had some really good years. You know, Coach was very good, tough coach, uh, uh, believed in up-tempo basketball and uh, loved to have it. He always had great guards. When you go back and look at the guards that played for him, uh, the first great player, obviously, being Skip Brown, who most of them got their – some them got their numbers hanging in the gym at, the, uh, at Wake. You know, you're starting with Skip Brown and uh, transition through Skip. Then Frank Johnson played the point. Then we had Danny Young and Frank and Danny and then Delaney Rudd. And then we had uh, Muggsy. And, and all these kids, you know, played, had significant NBA careers, which speaks to their talent level, obviously. And uh, we had some great frontcourt players. Roger Griffith was ACC Player of the Year in 78 for Coach Stacy And uh, you know, other kids that were high draft picks played for. We had good talent. Now, the talent in the ACC in the early 80s was phenomenal because kids didn't leave early. James Worthy was just out of sight. I know everybody in North Carolina, it's heresy to say in 1982 that James Worthy was the best player in North Carolina because everybody's convinced Michael Jordan was because he hit that jump shot to win the national championship. But Hands down, it was James Worthy. James Worthy had a phenomenal year. And his third year, and then he became the number one player in the draft. He, he was terrific. He was absolutely terrific that season. And they had Sam Perkins as well. They, they were not at a shortage for talent. And then Worthy left and Brad Darty came in. So they had some pretty good talent flowing through there. And, uh, and but, but we were fortunate enough we could compete against them. And uh, State had some very good players. Obviously, it was a Ralph Sampson era in, in Virginia. And, uh, you know, NC State was really good. Duke was going through a sort of transition there. Coach Krzyzewski was just getting his program started to the point that obviously where it is today and what he has accomplished. Georgia Tech was just coming in the ACC then. So they were going back to eight teams. They'd gone through a period of probably eight or nine years where there were only seven teams in the ACC when South Carolina left. So, you know, you helped transform Wake Forest into a perennial 20-plus win team consistently in the postseason. What was the difference as far as operations and budget between Wake and JMU at the time? I, it was somewhat – it was significant. It was significant because of the travel. We, we flew some charters even in those days. And uh, they were prop charters usually. They weren't jets. And we had uh, access to travel and – uh, stay, you know, we have more money, obviously. Uh, uh, but the ACC was not getting the windfalls, you would think. They were still struggling with their television package. I happen to know because I talked to people about it. They were C.D. Chesley. Uh, have you ever heard of C.D. Chesley? C.D. Chesley used to do all the games. And they had never thought of, believe it or not, they never thought of putting them out on a bid to see who wanted to do the games. So they started doing that. And they started getting more money and more, and they were amazed what had happened. They'd just taken whatever Chesley gave them. And so when that was great for ACC, this was Billy Packer, Jim Thacker. Uh, they did the games. And uh, if you talk to people who know the history of, of the ACC in those years, you know, there were maybe one game on Wednesday and maybe one or two on Saturday. That would be about it. Maybe one on Saturday, maybe one on Sunday. But the Sunday games in the early 80s were usually intersectional games. 
And you play a lot of intersectional games in January and February. And, uh, you know, that I think is, uh, and again, that, that is something I really think the NCAA uh, college basketball should look at. And I think they have with uh, the SEC and the Big 12 do these matchups because the ACC Big 10 deal in November is so removed from the selection in March of teams that being successful in those games is, is so, it's like four months ago. Now, when you're playing in January and February, major intersectional games on a Sunday, you're matching up two really high level teams and the winner has a chance to really enhance their position in the NCAA seating. Where now you win a game last week in November, first week of December, doesn't have a lot of cachet when you go up to March because your seasonal seasons come and go. You know, you could be playing your best basketball, but not be playing real well at the end of the year and vice versa on that. So it's, it, and you may lose that game in November, but play, be playing really well at the end of the season. So it's, I, 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 would, I thought those intersectional games were really significant and, and people would point to them. Well, you know, this team, the, the, you know, we played Arkansas and Marquette on a pretty regular basis. We would play on Sundays, and uh, that week we wouldn't play Saturday. We would just uh, travel Saturday and play an intersectional game on uh, Sunday. But that would, you know, those games would be on CBS. That was a big deal. NBC would cover them with Al McGuire and uh, Billy Piker. Big deal, and uh, Dick Inburn, and and those were significant things. Now there's so many games on television, and so many games people don't want to play intersectional games in in January and February. They tend to stay more in the conference. So, you know, I understand the thinking, but uh, those things I think are very vital when you're trying to determine, you know, the strength of teams at the end of the year. Now, you mentioned Muggsy Bogues a little while ago. He was one of the main players you coached awake. What made him so special? Five foot three makes the NBA. I mean, obviously there's something. Well, you know, Muggsy was just, uh, uh, you got to, again, a guy's doing a special in Muggsy for uh, uh, TBS. Uh, TBS owns NBA TV, which I didn't know, but anyone that couldn't do that thing in July. And I was telling him when he asked me the same question, I said, you've got to go back. Everything occurs in a context of time. Muggsy was a high school senior in 1983. I saw him in the summer of 82 at the five-star camp, which was a highly, very, very prestigious camp. And Muggsy was dominating the game on both ends because no one could take the ball away from him. And he created tremendous pressure on the ball. Well, 1982, there was no shot clock. In high school basketball around the country, there's still not a shot clock in many states. Very needed, but there's not. And so if you have a, but nobody had a shot clock. And we were experimenting in the ACC, ironically, at that year. We went at 82-83, we went, moved the three-point line up and went with the shot clock. I think turned it off last two minutes. I can't remember because there – and then in the NIT that year, there was another formula along the lines, but there was still the declaration that didn't occur. 86-87, I think, was the first year of the shot clock. So when Monty was recruited, you're looking at a guy who, A, uh, could run a delay game significantly, who had great ball speed if you wanted to play up tempo, and created tremendous ball pressure. And, you know, size didn't matter. You know, he, he impacted the game because of his speed and quickness and his talent. And uh, his freshman year, we went to the final eight in the country. He was our third guard. Our guards were young, Rudd, and folks, three guys 
who collectively played over 30 years in the NBA. So we were blessed with some very good, and we had some other good players in our front court. But I mean, you know, when you guards are so essential in college basketball, pretty essential in pro basketball right now. When you look around and watch the NBA, because of the rule, the way they play, the the way the rules have changed uh, in terms of uh, uh, you can't significantly put uh, your and, and for Muggs to do it, he did it in the '80s. He did it in the 80s and 90s, and those rules weren't there. But, I mean, you couldn't body him up because he was a strong, powerfully built kid. And, uh, you know, he could uh, he, he could sort of get away from you. You got a hard time uh, physically playing him. Great talent. He, he's done an extraordinary thing. And, you know, the greatest thing about him is the inspiration that he gives to so many kids. There are a lot more kids his size than there are six foot nine. And, uh, you know, if he can do it, maybe I can do it. But, you know, that's not, I mean, he has some extraordinary athletic ability. He would have been a great kick returner in football. He would have been a great base stealer in baseball. He would have been successful in any sport that he focused on. And we were just fortunate he played basketball. He played on one of the greatest high school teams ever. And then came to Wake and uh, then he, the impact he had, I mean, he is like the king of Charlotte. Uh, and he is a very, very accessible young man. Wherever he goes, he has time for people. He, you know, signs autographs, takes pictures. I mean, it's in the millions, the things he's done, you know, and, and the openness he has with people, but how people really relate to him and his ability to handle this situation. So, so he's a very big part of Wake Forest, also a very big part of North Carolina, for sure. You know, in 85, you moved out to Berkeley, reunited with Coach Campanelli after he was hired at Cal. Was that one of the easier moves you ran past your wife? <laughs> no, no, that, that was that was an interesting. The the, the greatest uh, the greatest thing about it was the great familiarity that two families had. You know, we lived just a few few houses down from in Harrisonburg, and the third part, you know, so so that was great to do. And the, the the next part was uh, Sherman Diller joined us, who I had coached in high school and Lou had coached in college. So that was that was a, it really was a family uh, family type deal, and then the other thing is I, I've often said that was a great move for me because it reinvigorated me. I think uh, uh, there was an old line a guy told me in coaching, you know, back in the day when you would sit and talk with. In fact, Al Grove was the head football coach at Wake, is the guy who gave it to me. Said the line which I've really used many times, you know, in coaching. And in any business you're in, but particularly coaching, which takes a very demanding for you, uh, sometimes you have to decide, uh, am I going to continue what I'm doing or I'm going to change where I'm doing it? And, you know, so basically it was a situation, I think it was a good time for me to change what I was doing so I could continue to do the same thing or it was a good time for me to do something else. So I decided to change words and it was very invigorating. We went to Cal, uh, the University of California at that time had lost 52 straight games to UCLA. UCLA has pretty good players down during that time period, but no one had lost 52 in a row to them. And particularly when Cal was the base school and UCLA was the branch school, if you go way back in the way the school was created. Uh, we were fortunate, we had a kid named Kevin Johnson on our team went on and played for the Phoenix Suns and was a great player. And, and so after coaching Bogues and Muggsy with his speed and then Kevin Johnson with his speed, 
you know, you're, you're pretty, you're pretty lucky coach when you have point guards who can elevate the ball up and down a court like those kids could. And again, the first year with Kevin as a junior, there was no shot clock. And only his senior year was the first year we did use shot clock. Reggie Miller was playing at UCLA, uh, Steve Kerr at, UC, at, at uh, Arizona, Sean Elliott. There were some really great players in that league at the time. And so that was, that was a very invigorating three years. So it was a lot of fun to do that. And also, you know, to live in a different part. Obviously, it was a challenging move for our kids. Kids didn't want to go when we went there. They didn't want to leave when we left. You know, they loved it. Uh, California is a great place to live if you can afford it. <laughs> what differences in style of play, recruiting and coaching did you notice, uh, you know, being on the West Coast after, you know, spending your whole life on the East Coast? I, it was not, it was not different. It was not significantly different. I think the thing that when you're in the West Coast, it's different, uh, particularly in the cities where the Pac-10s are, is the impact of professional sports is much greater in the West because you, you have, in California alone, uh, you have baseball teams, football teams, basketball teams, hockey. I mean, you know, and, and these are so if you're in San Francisco, you know, there's a lot of things for the two baseball teams, two professional baseball teams. And you had the 49ers who were at their apex in the 80s with uh, Montana and so forth. And uh, then you had uh, uh, the basketball, the Warriors were, were struggling at that point. And, um, you know, we, we only were like 30 minutes away from where the Warriors played and also where the Oakland A's played. And uh, so you're right there. The, the, it's, it's a closer proximity to professional sports. And then you go to L.A., it's, you know, the Dodgers. You got two baseball teams down there. You know, it's just the professional sports are everywhere. Phoenix, you see the situation there. That's why the U of A is probably a better job than Arizona State because Arizona State's in Phoenix. And, you know, it's uh, uh, in Tucson, Arizona is, you know, just a tremendous, powerful uh, entity there. The University of Arizona is. That's why, you know, it's uh, they'll get back to where they were. I know they've had a lot of struggles with a lot of major issues over the last couple of years. They'll bounce back because they have the capability to do that. You beat out Jack Bruin and Joe Gallagher for the George Mason job. Uh, what do you remember about that interview process? And describe taking over a program after Rick Barnes had plateaued that after a one-year stint into the Providence job. Uh, school obviously was a lot different then. It was a school that basically it was more like a, a commuter four-year school. There weren't a lot of dormitories. Uh, uh, the school was still searching for its identity in, in sports. Um, again, you're in a metropolitan area. And in Northern Virginia at that time, the biggest, biggest deal around were the Redskins. They were huge. They, and, and, and the amazing part about it in the facility, George Mason, it, we would run camp in the summer and Daryl Green was rolling through there all the time because they don't want to go out to Redskin Park to work out. So they worked out in George Mason. We had like four or five Redskins in the gym all the time. And, uh, and not in the gym, in the athletic department, where they'd be weightlifting and running and doing things of this nature. So, so it, it was a metropolitan area, which I obviously was familiar with every three years in there. And uh, it was a good team. Rick, Rick had uh, recruited good kids there, uh, uh, really a solid team. And we were fortunate enough to go to the NCAA the first year, won the tournament, and uh, – 
but it was a school that was, you know, had, had some challenges at that particular point. And uh, we did some things there that were good and then uh, uh, didn't work out the way we wanted it to. So I got the opportunity to, Dave gave me an opportunity to come back to Wake Forest, which, uh, which was a great because, you know, that was Tim Nuggan's first year. So it was a really great period of time to join Wake. Uh, but the George Mason experience was everything's a learning experience, you know, in coaching. And you have to take what you learn from one and take it to the next. And uh, uh, very, very fortunate to have that opportunity. And, uh, you know, obviously, you know, not only the guy who really built the program at George Mason was Joe Harrington. Mm-hmm. Rick was just there for one year. Uh, Joe had been there for probably seven or eight years. And they were so close. They just couldn't get, you know, they were right there. Richmond has a great team. The CAA in the 80s was really a tremendous league. With uh, obviously, you know, Navy was in. They had David Robinson, which was a significant player for them. They since left the league, but uh, uh, it, it was really an excellent basketball league. And then Richmond, uh, they, I think two two years out of about six, they had two teams in the NCAA tournament, hmm. which is unusual. They were getting that large bids. James Madison got one. Richmond got one. So it was a very highly competitive league, and also competed very well on the national level as well. Who was your first hire and who, who all was on your first college coaching staff? Uh, the first, the first coaching staff at uh, George Mason, the first hire was Herb Cruson, who had worked at Wake Forest for us. And uh, he had uh, actually, he was uh, interim coach at Western Carolina that year. He coached uh, the first year that the Ramsey was open. They had some crazy thing right before the season started Head coach resigned, one of the assistant coaches resigned. Herb was a really young coach. He was probably like in his latter 20s. And he'd been awake with us for a couple of years, played East Carolina for Coach Odom. And uh, so, so he joined me in, uh, at Wake Forest, excuse me, at George Mason. He was from Silver Spring, Maryland, which is in the Beltway. So he was very familiar. And then the second hire I made was Brian Ellerby. And Brian uh, uh, came, uh, he was also a DC kid. Uh, went to, from Bowie, Maryland, and obviously went on to become the head coach of Michigan. And, uh, uh, you know, won the first, uh, it, when he was the head coach, they won the Big Ten tournament, the first one they had at Michigan. So, so I had good coaches, you know, now we didn't have a big staff. Uh, the staffs were much smaller. Now. So we just had two full-time coaches, two full-time assistant coaches. But uh, they were terrific. Those two guys were very good, became lifelong friends. And, uh, you know, I, I still visit with them quite often, both of them. I stayed in touch with them. Um, good coaches, did a great job, and went on and, uh, you know, had significant careers. Brian obviously went to South Carolina, eventually uh, was an assistant at Michigan, and then when Coach Fisher resigned, he became the head coach and coached that team uh, uh, for three or four years. Now, the team at George Mason that first year started six and nine, people don't remember. You guys ended up winning 20-plus win seasons, like you said, uh, have an NCAA tournament appearance. How were you guys able to rally the troops back then? Well, it, it was like we, we had a good team. We had good talent. But, you know, I think many people underestimate, you know, this thing. But the team – basically, I was a third coach in three years. Mm-hmm. And uh, each coach is different. Each coach values different things. And uh, – uh, Rick was a guy that kids really, really liked to play for. They liked it. And so they were sort of upset he'd left. And so I guess some of that animosity came towards me because I replaced him. And 
Uh, you know, we struggled early. Now, we played a good schedule. I remember the first game we played was against Penn State. Then we played at Wichita State, which were, you know, very challenging games for George Mason at that particular point. And uh, then we went on and bounced around, played VCU early in the year, uh, right before, I think it was right before Christmas. Uh, and we just were not at the level to compete with those type teams. Although Penn State, I think, just beat us two points. It was a really good game, uh, but, but that was a challenge for us. And then uh, actually lost to Radford at home, which was uh, really, really difficult for us to handle, but they outplayed us. And then we won 14 out of 15 games because we started playing better. Now we started playing games in our conference where we were very successful and uh, had a run. The only team we lost to in that stretch was Richmond at Richmond in a close game. And then uh, uh, we transitioned into the tournament and won a conference tournament. And, and we got a hugely bad draw. I mean, we had to go to Tucson, Arizona to play for a team from Washington, DC. That just wasn't really a good thing. I mean, you weren't gonna have any fans there. And so the first, the first NC2A bid was almost diffused by where you were going. And you had to leave quite early in the week. So, you know, it was, uh, uh, but that's, you know, we played Indiana and they had a great team because Knight had, uh, I can't remember who was playing for him completely. Jay Edwards was his top player who went on and played the NBA, had a very physical team and they just, you know, had a talent level that, that, that we could not really match up against. Kids played well against them, but, uh, you know, it just wasn't going to happen. They had been upset the previous year, believe it or not, by Richmond in the NC2A tournament. So they weren't going to lose to CAA team two years in a row. So we really had, uh, we could have had a better draw. <laughs> but it was, you know, again, it's an experience, an experience for our kids. Uh, we came back and, you know, 20 wins the next year. And uh, uh, then the third year, we basically overscheduled. Scheduled. It was like you were struggling to try to get recognition for your team but your conference was so competitive that if you owe, if you in the non-league, you need to play more games you can be successful in. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, went to the finals of the conference tournament the third year, lost to a really good Richmond team. And I had an opportunity to go to the NCAA that year as well if we could have won that game. So. You know, I recall your daughter graduated from Woodson just like I did. How well did you know Coach Red Jenkins back then? Oh, I know. I knew Red pretty well. I knew him obviously prior to that because we had recruited players that he had coached. He always has had good play. Obviously, Coach Tommy Amaker, who recruited Wake Forest, and uh, uh, so, so I'd gotten to know Red over the. I didn't know him well, but I mean, I knew him. And he ran a camp at George Mason. Uh, you know, at one time he ran a summer camp. Uh, as uh, you know, Red is a big camp guy. He loves to run camp. And, uh, you know, my youngest daughter graduated from Woodson. And, I mean, he was a nice guy. Red's a good guy. He had some good players over the years. Tommy, obviously, probably being his most distinguished player. I don't know that there was one. Great. Pete Halbert was a good player who went on and played at Maryland. Mm -hmm. Didn't have – obviously, Tommy had a great college career. And, uh, you know, obviously, he's done tremendously well as a coach. Good guy. And uh, – um, so, you know, Red's good. Red, Red was good. Very committed high school coach. I don't know how many years he coached high school. He, he continued, I think, to coach high school after he retired from teaching. As, as he loved Woodson High School. And, uh, you know, he's very active in the summer, always had his kids in summer leagues. And, you know, he was a very committed coach. And I think, you know, the one thing I think that's 
somewhat lacking. I wouldn't criticize it, but I, it's hard to find coaches like that today at the high school level who tend to surrender their kids to the um, to the travel team and so forth. Now, maybe, you know, I don't know that they have much choice in that matter, but, you know, that's why it's great to see these two weekends that they've got going on right now where uh, you have high school teams participating as high school teams, team camps. And so team camps used to be a great thing. Oh, my gracious. They were great ways to develop teams. They were a great way to watch kids and evaluate. North Carolina have to used to have something called the state games. I don't know whether they still do it or not. It was a great basketball event. They had it around. They had it. Unfortunately, I had it on NC State's campus, which is great because they had the facilities there. But it, it was great to go watch teams play. But it would be a select group of 32 high schools be in it. You had all kinds of teams. You had private schools, public schools, big schools, little schools. They all compete against each other. And we as coaches were allowed to go. And then we had to go only if we worked. So we had to keep score, run the clock, or do something like that to be part of the environment. But I thought it was really a great experience because you saw these kids playing with their high school team. And imagine where people are not out there trying to assert their status as a player. They're playing on, with a high school coach. But it's, it's, it's very challenging now. You know, in the old Washington, D.C. area, you know, you know, that Morgan Wooden set the standard of, of how recruiting was handled. You know, at DeMatha and other high schools learned from him. So when they had players, they tended to follow that program he had, where he kept the kids close. He let them go to maybe camp once a year and, that, and once in the summer, and that was it. And, and they stayed there. And the summer leagues used to be tremendous in D.C., uh, high school summer leagues. But they now, all that, you know, is taking a back seat to the – uh, they're not AAU teams, they're travel team philosophy, which has now permeated uh, high school basketball. Your teams, when you were a head coach, and then even when you were on the road as an assistant, always had some DMV, Northern Virginia flavor to them. Outside of Red, which, which high school coaches did you have the best relationships with? Uh, you know, never really had a problem with any, you know, all, you know, we, we recruited a, a kid out of Dunbar High School, D.C., at Dunbar High School, Maryland. Um, obviously, Red, Red, Red was a good guy, you know, uh, in North Carolina, really, really met some fabulous coaches. And Preston McLean, who used to be the coach at Broughton, excuse me, at Enlow. Good gracious, that's a terrible mistake. Enlow High School. And that's where I recruited Danny Young. And then, and when Danny was playing as a senior, Nate McMillan was a sophomore on that high school team. And Nate came up and obviously then went to Chawan, a junior college for two years before he came back to NC State. So uh, Norvell Lee, who coached at Goldsboro. And, uh, you know, uh, Reggie Henderson, who coached at Rocky Mount. Uh, Harvey Reed, who coached at uh, Elm City and then at uh, Fike. These were legendary high school coaches. Uh, the last three coached in, they coached when the game, when the high school associations were segregated. They coached at the black high schools and they transitioned in and uh, as the schools integrated, continued because they were giants in Eastern North Carolina. You're Reggie Henderson, you're talking about guy coached Buck Williams and Phil Ford, you know, and uh, Harvey Reed had equally distinguished players as did Norvell. And they always had talent. They always have kids that knew how to work and were committed to the game and, and wanted to become really good players. And, and so North Carolina was always good as well as Virginia. You know, Fletcher Air had just passed away, who was mm -hmm. the legendary coach at Fork Union, who always had talent. 
And uh, way back when I started in the mid seventies, there used to be a prep school at Frederick Military in uh, Tidewater in Portsmouth. And they really had good players. At that time, Hardgrave was not participating at that level. Uh, the other school was Frederick and Fork Union. And eventually Hardgrave came back for Frederick ceased to exist, but Fork Union is, has been the mainstay for all those years of having kids. And when kids would go through your program, you knew they had kids that were disciplined. You had kids that uh, had uh, understood, had, had grown academically because of the way the, the program was structured. And they know how to work. They know how to work. And a prep year is just a, a great, great year. You know, I mean, uh, one of the best players, you know, you know, the kind of kids that, uh, Josh Hyatt prepped at Hargrave. Darius Singali prepped at New Haven. Rafael Venereta prepped at New Haven. It's invaluable. It's absolutely, Wes Miller with the New Haven. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a, an invaluable tool in development because of the level of competition, but also you're living away from home and you have to take care of yourself and things of that nature. So it's, it's a really important step for kids. And again, those kids can transition into college a lot easier because of what they've already been through. You know, you talked about kind of overscheduling uh, and George Mason, you know, having back-to-back 20-loss seasons that, that make a coaching change. And for the first time in 15 years, you're out of a job. Did you panic or did you know that you would land on your feet, you know, whether it was at Wake uh, Forest you know, or elsewhere? I, I didn't panic, or, but basically, you know, obviously, you know, you have some uh, – uh, you have some concerns. You have com some concerns because you have a family and you have uh, children in college and so forth. And so there's a, a financial aspect to it. There's a professional aspect to it. And you have to be able to uh, look at the opportunities and, and decide just what you're going to do. And, you know, I got uh, an opportunity to go to Wake Forest as at that time, the phrase was, uh, uh, it was, it was the restricted earnings coach. Uh, you had two full-time pay, and then you had a part-time pay coach. Full-time work, part-time pay. You were restricted how much money. Now, eventually, obviously, it was unconstitutional, <laughs> and uh, the, a court case was launched, and eventually they lost the court case, et cetera, like that. And then after one year at that, I transitioned to a full-time assistant again at Wake when uh, Coach Rainwhite went to uh, UNCW. And uh, so it, it was a, it was sort of a different thing, but it, you know, basically I could I could uh, I could scout. I did a lot of scouting. I was able to go off campus and scout. And one of the great things about the AAUs, which were tremendous at that time, the maybe seventeen and unders, or I'm not sure which one. It was in the Joe Coliseum, mm -hmm. and not only was it in the Joe Coliseum, the teams were coming on campus to practice in the facility that Wake had uh, when you had the four four courts in the old Reynolds gym. So, you know, a lot of uh, the teams came through there and, and wanted practice, coordinate practice for them and set that up. So you were still involved in the recruiting and you could stay somewhat actively involved in that type of stuff. So uh, that was my first year back at Wake and uh, it was good. You know, we, we had a nice team, went to the NC2A uh, and uh, then returned that team the next year and had a tremendous team and won the conference championship back to back then. But it was, uh, and you go through the evolution of Tim, obviously, as he evolved as a player. Uh, you know, Ricky Peral was not able to play the first year, even though he was on campus. And he came back, Timmy's sophomore year, and played with him. 
really strengthened our team. Scooter Banks had a great year as well as uh, Randolph. And then, of course, the influx of uh, Tony, Tony Rutland and Jerry Braswell was vital to the development of the team. You talk about Tim Duncan and, you know, obviously coach guys like Randolph Childress, or Rusty LaRue, Darius Angalia, Rodney Rogers, other big-time players who wore the black and gold during the Dave Odom years. You know, outside of raw skill, what made those guys such top-level players and what made them such great fits in Winston-Salem? Well, you know, each kid's very different. Rodney came. Now, I did not recruit Rodney. Rodney was leaving. He was leaving when I was coming. You know, he was going to the NBA, and then Tim was coming in. And uh, But Rodney is a great kid, an unbelievable kid who played great. And, you know, uh, the school really fit him. It really fit Tim because, you know, they uh, they, they just fit in. Rodney, basically, uh, it, it was great for him for academics as well as his basketball development. And also they came because the opportunity existed for them to play and get better. And this is so important, you know, when kids go to school. Too many kids go to colleges where basically they're gonna have to fight to get on the court. And Coach Odom was really good. He knew how to build a team. He just didn't bring a lot of players. He brought in guys who fit together. And kids, some guys would, I think the most important thing when you build a team is you have some primary players, some secondary players, and guys are tertiary players. And each group has to know that now it's not like those roles can't change as they go through the process. But kids today seem too impatient to wait for that to happen. And it's a real shortcoming for them because now they go to another team or another place they go to and they're still faced with the same issues. The things that they couldn't do at the previous school, they can't do at this school because they haven't had to address them. They spent all their time in the springtime trying to figure out where they're going to go rather than working on becoming a better player. And I think that was the great thing with Rodney stayed three years. Timmy stayed four. Randall was there five. And, uh, you know, uh, that's very important to the stability of the program. You know, the kids are there. And I know that's very challenging to do in today's day and time. And that was almost another era. That was an era when kids only left if they had opportunities to be highly drafted. Now kids change schools, they apply for the, I, I am absolutely amazed that the NCAA does not allow kids to go back to college who have not been drafted. Mm-hmm. I don't understand that at all. Uh, in baseball, you can be drafted and still go back to college. You know, it, you know, it's, it, it, these kids come out, it's a bad decision for many of them. Then they turn around and don't get drafted. And it's, they should have the opportunity to come back to school. They really should because they're in the midst of making a horrible decision. The only thing that's going to convince them it's a horrible decision is when they don't get drafted. Now they realize, well, I'm not going to get drafted. No, the draft's over. Your only opportunity is to go back to school and get drafted next year or to bang around and try to G-league it and summer league and G-league and all this stuff. And, and that's not going to happen. There are too many guys out there trying to do that stuff. And it's, it's so important that, that, that kids be in environments where they can be successful. I don't know. You're not going to take a kid in high school, in college rather, that hadn't had a degree of success in high school. you got guys averaging seven, eight points declaring for the NBA draft. I mean, come on you got to be good at one level before you can go to the next level. That's just, that's, that, that's just uh, common sense. That's just common sense. And, 
kids are not exercising much of it today. No, and it's tough because, like you said, when they don't get drafted, you know, as a college coach, you got to still fill a roster. So, oh, sure. You know, it, I don't know if they would have to change the time of the, the date of the draft, but yeah, I've never liked the whole, okay, you, you don't get drafted. All right, well, nothing we can do. You lost your eligibility. And, you know, that, that that's part of the whole deal. Uh, you know, I always advise kids, you know, I don't care who you're listening to. Make sure you're listening to someone that's been successful in whatever they do. They're a successful attorney. They're a successful accountant. Someone who hasn't had success in their life should not be advising you on how to have success in your life, particularly in basketball if he doesn't have a good background in it. And, and, and that's what, what happens so often. They begin to listen to key people who tell them basically what they want to hear. I think it's uh, not like that, but I mean, the Ben Simmons situation is such a, an incredible story right now, not of what this kid can't do, is how he's got to this place. How did he get to this place so far in the basketball as he seems to be very committed to becoming a basketball player, but now he's got himself in such a predicament. And uh, I think he basically has spent a whole lot of time listening to people who haven't been able to assist him and not listening to people who could. And, you know, you can come up with ifs, ands, and what's it, but I mean, he's four years in the NBA. He should figure out how it works now. It's, it's not a mystery. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's a sad thing to see a kid in that situation. Now, hopefully he can make the adjustments and come back and, and you know, rehabilitate himself and become the kind of player everybody thinks he's going to be. I don't know what kind of player anybody thinks he's going to be anyway, because this is a kid when he was in college, his team didn't make the NCAA tournament. And he's supposed to be a pretty talented kid. And he is a tremendous physical talent. But my point is, you know, how did he get to this place? How did he get to this place for the last five or six years of his life? You know, where, where he can't make free throws, he's got no confidence. And, you know, the one thing you got to do in basketball is you really got to invest in the game significantly. I, I always used to see the title, see that uh, Nike, I think it was Nike had a, a campaign or it was Gatorade, I don't know which one. You want to be like Mike in, refer, in referring to Jordan. And I always used to tell kids, I said, first of all, there's certain things you can't be like Mike. You can't do some of the things he can do. He has gifts from God that, you know, and he has developed his talent to such a level. But if you want to be like Mike, improve every year, because that's what he's done. He's not the player he was when he was in college. He's not the player he was when he was four years out of college. He gets better and better and better each year. Now, how can he keep doing that? because he just has such a commitment and a focus on his head. And you can do the same thing. Now, you can't do it to the level he can, but you can do it in a progression of making yourself a better basketball player as you go through this process. Be like Mike, improve every year, whether it's your free throw shooting, whether it's your uh, ability to score around a basket, whether it's your strength, it's speed, it's your ball handling. There's so many aspects of basketball that if you focus on one summer and you really focused on that one aspect of it, it would improve your game exponentially. And, and that's what kid game. And obviously you just can't go play pickup all the time and advance those skills. 
you've got to spend a lot of time really working on the skill aspect of the game. Basketball is a game of skill. Uh, you have to have a certain level of athletic ability to play it, but you also got to have a certain level of skill. And that's what we're seeing today. With uh, If anybody has ushered in skill in the NBA, you got to give Steph Curry a whole lot of credit. He has brought skill back into the game. Not that it was ever out of the game, but he has made it – it's just unbelievable the depth and the range these guys have in shots now. Shots are before they would never even think of depth. And, and that's the Steph Curry influence. Because he just shoots a ball anywhere across half court, he's going to jack it up. And he's going to have great success with it. And he has coaches that are comfortable with him doing that. But you, you look at the kid from um, Trey Young, who is – he's really along those lines. And maybe he's more talented. I don't know. But, you know, he's of equal talent and he's, uh, you know, he basically is. But to get to that level of development, the level of practice is, is just impossible to estimate, to have that skill level. And that's that anybody who's getting paid to play basketball should be, a, be working towards having that kind of a skill level because that just makes your career that much longer because then you begin less to depend on your body and more to depend on your skills and talent and understanding of the game. You know, the success you guys had at Wake Forest honestly might never be duplicated. You guys made the postseason every year together, uh, winning the ACC championship, reaching the Sweet 16, then the Elite Eight in 95 and 96, respectively. What was your fondest memory of those years at Wake Forest? Wow, one memory you know, just uh, uh, the camaraderie of the kids and the coaches. We had a good time doing it. We, I, I, I guarantee you, a week didn't go by. I don't talk to Dave Odom or Ricky Stokes. Uh, you know, obviously don't talk to the players because they go on in their lives, but hear from them occasionally, which is great. Uh, we got them together in uh, uh, February of uh, – you got to get the years straight here because of the I really is, is, is February 2020. And uh, mm-hmm. that, yeah, it was a 25 year reunion of the team. We brought him in for a game and uh, it was terrific. Timmy was able to come up because he was coaching, but he worked out on his schedule. Obviously, Randall was already there. And uh, uh, kids really made an effort to get there. Rodney Rogers, who was not part of that team, was very much part of the program. He came in. And we, we just had a tremendous night. And there was a banner hung for Coach Odom in the gym, which was neat. And uh, it, it was a close group. The kids worked hard. They, they had invested. Coach did a great job of creating a spirit among them where they got along really well. And, you know, it was, it was a role definition. There was no question who the best player was. And he sure didn't act like it. But, you know, he, he performed like it. And other kids, you know, fell into place around him. Tony Rutland tore his ACL in the championship in 1996. If he hadn't done that, he'd play in the NBA. He's a tremendous player. Never really came back from that injury to the degree. And we were very blessed to have him. And uh, he played very well as a freshman, a good sophomore. He did as a junior and senior, but could never go back to the level he played as uh, uh, a sophomore. He, he played tremendous basketball for us. And, uh, uh, so, so we're very blessed with kids and the kid, again, they got better. Timmy got better. He was six, nine, two Oh eight as a freshman. He left at probably six eleven. 
240 because he worked at it. He worked at his body and his game developed. And uh, Ricky Perrault developed until, you know, Randolph, you know, the way he played at the end of his career, you know, he wasn't playing like as a freshman, he wasn't playing like as a sophomore, but it's development, continuity. And I think the patience or the lack thereof of kids today where they want to move to the next, the development of Rusty was phenomenal. Rusty LaRue's incredible story. It's a story that's often forgotten in Wake Forest. Here was a kid who was on a football scholarship who his sophomore year, you know, struggled to play a whole lot because he was in football shape and he gained some weight and everything. He, he, right at the end of the year, he was getting in basketball shape when the season ended. So what he did, being the smart kid he is, he stayed in basketball shape from then on. He played football and basketball shape his last two years, not the reverse. And so his transition into basketball was so much easier. Rusty played in the NBA. NBA player has a championship ring from uh, uh, the uh, Chicago Bulls and played in the number of games that put him on the pension. He, he will be able to draw the pension when he gets to, he played in X number of games. I don't know what the formula is, but he met it. And, and that's a forgotten aspect of all the, uh, that went on during that year and a tremendous contributor to the team. And he played football. And one time tried to play baseball as well. Tremendous. I mean, he's like, uh, he was like a throwback kid. Plus he was an excellent student, very, very bright kid. And uh, just uh, and married and had a child when he was in college. I mean, he was just, he's just a throwback kid. Unbelievable. How to balance things and, and do things, you know, that, uh, 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 and be successful at all. He isn't doing, I mean, he excelled at him and, and go on and play in the NBA, which nobody thought was possible when he left college. No one was, oh yeah, Russell Leroux, he's an NBA player. You know, it's like, what's he going to do after college? You know, he played in the USBL and banged around, went to Europe, I think, and played in Russia and played with the Bull. I mean, he just bounced around and pretty soon, when it was all said and done, he had an NBA career, which is pretty cool when you really think about it. Coach Odom left Wake Forest for South Carolina. What made him come to that decision, and what went through your head when he told you he was leaving? Well, he, he got to the point where it's either time for him to change what he was doing or change where he was doing it, and he just decided to change where he was doing it. And uh, he wanted to do the same thing. So he went to South Carolina and, uh, you know, I went down there with him for a couple of years and uh, then had the opportunity to come to Elon. You know, it was a different situation for him because at that time, you know, South Carolina, South Carolina, it, it, when you cross that state line, you're going from a football to a basketball. I mean, from a basketball to a football environment, if you're going North to South. And obviously their team did go to the final four a few years ago, uh, some issues out there with that, but nevertheless, you know, it's it, the mentality is so football oriented. It's an SEC school. It's an S, you know, the football is, there's, you know, <laughs> you look at their stadium, they have a nice gym. They have a gigantic stadium. You know, I always say, you look at the team, the school's athletic facilities, I'll tell you what they value, you know, and uh, when you have an 85 seat football stadium and, you know, the, the gym's nice, 18,000, that's, that's pretty good. At Wake, you know, you got a 32,000 seat football stadium and a 14,000 basketball arena. Uh, you know, that that's Wake Forest needs success in basketball. It's very important to that school because it's going to be challenging to compete at the football level simply because football is a numbers game. 
and a small school, that's a challenge too. There's a reason Duke and Wake Forest have the, uh, they've had great coaches at both schools over the years. But, you know, they, they just not going to win as many football games. They are at State and Carolina over a 20-year period for obvious reasons. And uh, some of them tied to academic school size, you know, number of kids and so forth like that. You had Mike Boynton as a player two years at South Carolina. Did you ever imagine to be a head coach in the Big 12? Uh, well, obviously, I didn't imagine that, but I knew that Michael was a smart kid, and he's a very cerebral kid. And uh, my, Mike actually was a point guard, evolved a shooting guard, uh, did very well. And, and you could see he had good leadership qualities and very good leadership qualities. I, I was with Michael his sophomore, junior year, and he did a good job. And then he was fortunate enough to hook on with Brad Underwood, uh, who came to South Carolina with Frank Martin, I believe is how it went. Brad took the job with Stephen F. Austin. Mike went with him. They had good success there. Went to Oak State with him. And then when Brad left, you know, they made Michael the coach. And, uh, you know, he was fortunate enough to just have a great team. Obviously had the number one, probably the, the kid who should be the number one player in the draft, Kate Cunningham. So, you know, he, he has evolved, you know, and uh, he's a smart kid. He's uh, carpe diem, and he sees the moment. He sees the opportunity he had. And a lot of other people get in that situation. You know, it's hard to be in those situations, but it's even harder to be successful in those situations. And Michael's accomplished that. So I give him all credit. Very humble kid, very nice, very approachable kid. So I'm really happy for him. Yeah, the team in South Carolina was a runner-up in the NIT, losing to John Calipari's Memphis Tigers, led by uh, DeWan Wagner. How cool was it to play in MSG? Well, you know, that was really an interesting involvement. You know, I've been fortunate enough three times to play in the semifinals. Uh, in 83, we went to semifinals, lost to Fresno State. In 2000, we beat Notre Dame at Wake Forest and won the NIT. And, uh, and that year was really a fun trip because the trip, the, the team, we were so close to getting in the NC2A with that group. We lost a couple games early got in the tournament and we beat Kentucky and we beat Mississippi and we beat Kentucky in the SEC tournament and really had Alabama beat, had a really horrible call that, you know, replay showed was made the wrong way, but it was very decisive and impacting the outcome of the game. So we come home and we're, gosh, I guess we probably had 16 or 17 wins. We knew we weren't going to get in the NC2A. Every big game we needed to win. We, we had lost to Georgetown by two, which was a huge game for us. We went to Maui that year and just got crushed by Duke and UCLA. We're playing terrible the first year of the team and everything. And plus, I think uh, Duke won a national championship that year and UCLA had a great team as well. So then we got the opportunity to play in the NIT and really played well. So we ended up winning seven out of our last eight games. And, uh, and, and get to the finals against a really good Memphis team. And Wagner's an excellent player. The game really comes down to play right before the half. <laughs> and a kid rotates out, Wagner hits a three, and it gives them a lot of momentum. And they have a kid, and this is so true of tournament basketball or playoff basketball, they have a kid average seven points a game for him who goes on and gets 23 against us. And big kid, and, uh, and that, that took us down. But it was a great experience for our kids. It was really a great experience in South Carolina. People got so excited. Our first game, believe it or not, they said the two teams with the highest rated RPI was Virginia and 
South Carolina. So the NIT's thinking was, well, we'll have them play each other the first game so we get, you know, ESPNs. So we go to Virginia to start the, start the tournament and are fortunate enough to win. And so then we come home, the next two games are at home and then play our way to New York. And uh, we beat Syracuse in a really close game in the semifinals. Two-point game, really interesting thing. We get to the, we get to the gym on a, I guess it's on a Tuesday. We're playing the first game. They start the game like at 5, 36 o'clock because of double header. And both teams have white uniforms on. Syracuse is supposed to be going to dark colors. We, we were cr dressed correctly, but both teams got white. So Coach Odom, Coach Beheim, very good friends. Hey, we'll start the game. We'll send back. Well, the problem is in New York City at that particular time, getting around in traffic is virtually impossible. And the, Syracuse had to go back to the hotel to get their uniforms. So this was a challenge because of the commuter traffic is going on. So eventually they got them, they brought the uniforms on. Of course, the kids change right there on the court because they wear so much gear now up underneath their stuff. So they put on the orange uniforms and we played the game that way. It's sort of a neat sidelight to it, but it just showed, hey, we'll figure it out, let's go. And, uh, you know, you had two coaches who had a really good relationship with each other. And they said, hey, it's our fault, we'll work it out. Well, you know, we weren't gonna cancel the game. We're going to play shirts and skins. So, you know, it was on TV as ESPN game. So we played, I guess, maybe to the second TV timeout, first TV timeout, the uniforms had arrived back by then. And uh, we finished the game. We're fortunate enough to win the game. A really good team. And uh, um, uh, that put us up against Memphis, which was extremely good. The Wagner kid was really good. And I um, had some health issues or he would have been a really outstanding pro player. I understand his son's Extraordinary, extraordinary. Yeah, um, you know, I wonder how many jobs you had interviewed for, you know, as a to be a head coach while you were at Wake and then South Carolina. Um, you know, I know Elon hired you to be their head coach two thousand three. Spent six years there. Um, you know, just talk about, you know, being in the mix for other jobs, and then what attracted you. Uh, to coaching in the SOCON and that job in particular? Well, I, one, obviously I was familiar with Elon because, you know, obviously he's in North Carolina. I knew Dr. White, who's the AD. And, and I was really excited about the fact they were just entering the Southern Conference. Never been in this first year in the Southern Conference, They'd been leaving the Big South. And uh, I mean, I remember we went down to Georgia Southern. We on the bus, we're going down to play Georgia Southern. No one knows I get to Statesboro. And uh, uh, the bus driver doesn't know. And we stumble. Finally, we get down there. It's really a nice little community, but it's it's really challenging to get to the first time. Uh, uh, so uh, we had to learn how to get around, you know, in the Southern Conference. It's a really good league. Uh, nice coaches in it. You know, Larry Hunter, who passed away a couple of years ago, was a great friend I made in that. Mike Young, you know, I have friendship with him over competing. Bobby Kremens was in the league. You know, just a lot of Franny McCafferty uh, um, and, uh, you know, really good quality coaches at all the schools. It was a funny league because they were in the process of kicking East Tennessee out the first year I got there because they dropped football and didn't do it the right way, so to speak. But the first year they were maybe the first two, the first two years they were in the league, then they were out. And, uh, and of course, we went to Chattanooga, which was always a uh, a challenging trip, but uh, Chattanooga is a great sports city, tremendous sports city, really good, nice arena, real good following, and the one double-A football there as well, a really nice facility, beautiful city, 
right there on the river. And uh, uh, so, so the Southern Conference really has a lot of good, so now they've added some new, more schools, which makes those trips longer. I mean, it was a brutal trip because it was always by bus. Seemed like we always played on Chattanooga on a nine, Monday night, games over at nine o'clock, you know, a bus about 10 and you got like basically a six hour bus ride to get back and kids need to go to school the next day. You know, that's the kind of school it was. But it was a challenge for us. Obviously, the facility was a drawback for us because it did not evolve very much. Understand you have a nice gym now, but mm-hmm. then it was uh, just a big high school gym and had a lot of malfunctions with the bleachers and baskets. Uh, uh, was a continual challenge there. Uh, but, uh, you know, we got some good kids and we were able to compete. Uh, the issue we had there is an issue I really have in college basketball, and that's the money games. You play the money games and what happens. Uh, God told me a great line in college athletics. He says, today's favor becomes tomorrow's obligation. And it really applies in scheduling of basketball games. Well, if you'll just play an extra game this year, and then, uh, you know, pretty soon you're playing four and five of those games a year. So you're generating money that basically really doesn't impact your program, impacts the athletic department. But basically, hard games to win, hard games to win. So you're going to put your record at a deficit and you're not going to be able to offset it with non-division one games because you only play one or two of those. So, and you really are not the type of school that's going to dominate your conference. When you play a challenging non-league schedule and you can dominate your conference and you're one of the top teams in your conference is one thing, but when you're going to be fighting for your life every night in your conference, it's, it's, it's another challenge for you. It's really tough. And, and again, it's tough for your kids to deal with that because when you play those games, sometimes you, know, you take some pretty tough lickings and uh, you know, now you got to get back up. Now, when you play the games, you have a chance to win. It's tough to be successful because your kids have you know not had the success that, that other others are having. So that was a big challenge for us there. And ne- we never grew out of it. We never grew out of the money games, and, and that was that was a little disappointing because it did impact our team. Um, but that, that's just the nature of the game right now. You know, you had assistant coaches like Jim Fitzpatrick, Joel Justice, uh, Wes Miller, Mike Preston, Dave Wilson, to name a few. Do you take pride in knowing that you helped groom those guys to have the success that they've gone on to have? Well – I hope I contributed something to them uh, in terms of, uh, you know, I, I always would tell them, you know, you're, you're, I expect you to do things. You know, my job is to make you a better coach. Your job is to do what I ask you to do, to do the best you can. And it's not more than just recruiting. You got to learn how to teach. You got to learn how to present to the team in terms of scouting reports. Uh, uh, you got to learn how to mentor kids. And, and, you know, we didn't have big, big staffs. We had two offices and four people and, uh, you know, in the corner of the gym and, you know, but we had really high quality guys. Uh, Tim Fuller worked for me for a year who worked at Wake Forest and also went on and worked at various places. And then Jimmy came along, Jimmy, who I'd known since he was 10 years old. And he, he really had a, he really a great future in college basketball and decided he wanted to become, and he, he's got one of the best jobs in the whole DC area, either Maryland or, uh, 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 Georgetown. I said, you got one of the best head coaching jobs in the DC area at Episcopal high school. And David Wilson now is coaching at a very similar school in Memphis. He's at Memphis, uh, university school. Now it's not a boarding school, 
but it's a highly academic, uh, really committed uh, basketball program there, boys' school in uh, in Memphis. Uh, uh, Mike is in high school coach, and Joe obviously has had more of a. Uh, Wes have had more of a career where basically people know what they've done. He went to uh, did a couple high school jobs, and he's been with Kentucky, and now he's at Arizona State, and obviously. Wes, Wes has just done a great job at UNC Greensboro. He's put them on the map and is now going to uh, do a great job at Cincinnati. I feel very comfortable he will. And, uh, you know, having having worked with them at formative stages of their career is, is always good to see them have success. It had to have been awkward last season when, you know, it was well speculated that uh, Ryan Odom – was going for the, the Wake Forest job. And I know Wes Miller, there was some interest as well. Did you have a dog in the fight at that point? or I, I really did. Now, I wasn't in any position to, uh, to impact, you know, decisions and so forth. And, uh, uh, you, know, um, you know, I knew they were involved. I don't know to what degree other than what they told me, their view of it. Uh, I know that uh, uh, obviously uh, – they made a choice other than either one of them, which, you know, is their business to make. Uh, but they had two kids that were really at a, two young men that, you know, really formed stages in their career. And I think are going to go on and continue to build their careers. So maybe it's not the worst thing, you know, things happen for the best in life and also in coaching. Maybe it's just not the right time for you to be doing this particular thing. And, uh, and we'll see, we'll see how it turns out for all of the people involved, but they're both really quality coaches and, doing good things, have great loyalty to their staff. I've watched, you know, I know Ryan took his staff with him. Wes has put his staff back together, people he's worked with. I'm really excited to see Mike Roberts rejoining him, who I, I like Mike a lot, got to know him quite well in Greensboro. And he's been in Indiana for a couple of years. He knows that terrain, terrain out there pretty good, which, you know, uh, Southern Indiana, Ohio, the Midwest, Mike obviously was a, that's good for Wes. And he hired a young man who'd been with him at, uh, I think he was coaching at Middle Tennessee who rejoined his staff. So, so happy for both of them. Uh, obviously uh, uh, for uh, Joel was going in a situation where he's, he's, he'll obviously, if you are in Arizona, you're West of the Rockies, you got to recruit Southern California. And he's already shown the ability to do that at Kentucky with uh, the kid who had the great uh, tournament from UCLA, who had been in Kentucky for a year, Juzik and, uh, another kid from California who transferred went to Texas. So, so he knows the terrain there and that, that, that will be his recruiting, one of his recruiting challenges as well. But the way things are now, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's recouping talent as well as recruiting talent, getting kids off the portal. Uh, portal recruiting has now become uh, uh, really, and, and this spring was really even unbelievable because kids couldn't take visits. They couldn't take official visits, which obviously – they started doing, I guess, the first of June, and um, and and will continue to do. But uh, uh, that's uh, a real concerning thing. But I guess it isn't. You know, things evolve, and you know they do this in Europe every year. The professional teams in Europe they sign players to two-year contracts with a team option for the second or player option, and, and kids just change teams every year. It seems like. They're playing with this. If a kid plays six years in Europe, he'll probably play for four or five teams. And, uh, you know, and, and that's what's happening now in college. I mean, uh, you know, uh, um, 
I talked with someone the other day. He says, you know, there'll be guys playing on three teams, three, three colleges. I said, they're already doing that. Yeah. They're already doing that. Uh, Keyshawn Woods went to uh, Charlotte. He transferred to Wake and set out, graduated, and went to Ohio State for his senior year. I mean, you can still do it now. You don't have to uh, – uh, and he's just one of many. And he graduated college. Their guy's doing it and never graduating. <laughs> They're just able to maneuver around because of all the waivers and so forth that's going on. And uh, But I don't know that they ever get themselves where they want to be. And I always have, again, I'm an old school guy. I believe if you're struggling in a situation, you get that situation right and then leave it. You don't leave because you're struggling. You clean up the mess before you leave. And, and now kids are getting in the habit of when things are a struggle, they just leave. They change. I'll go somewhere. I, I'm not happy here. I'll be happy there. And there are guys over there, too, that want to play. And they don't look at you as being part of that equation. They, they, they have their own equation. And uh, there are guys on that program over there. You may know the top guys. You, you don't know how good the guys that don't play are. Sometimes those guys are pretty good. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, uh, kids bounce around from school to school. And, uh, you know, you look at their production sometimes and, uh, you know, they're, they're playing less at the second school than they were at the first one. And, and if, is that the reason they left? I mean, you know, what's, uh, what's the issue? What are they trying to accomplish here? They just want to be somewhere where they have to, where less is expected of them, less is demanded of them. I think you grow in this game when you're in situations where more is demanded of you and you have to deliver. And uh, that's how you're going to grow as a player. But again, I don't think I got the view that kids are looking at right now. I couldn't agree more with you, coach. You know, your name, SoCon Coach of the Year in 2006, you led Elon to their first winning season in their first seven years of Division One basketball, captured those SoCon North Division title. You know, and then you ended up taking them to the SoCon tournament final, uh, falling to the eventual, you know, champion Davidson. They had a guy we've talked about, Steph Curry. Sure. What was your game plan for facing them when they had Steph Curry? Well, the way we play, you know, I think the only way you can play those kind of guys, and now no one else plays them that way. I just think when they use ball screens, you got to use the opportunity to use as much double teaming as you can. I, I would much rather have someone else making plays than those guys. <laughs> so, you know, I would, if you make them give the ball up, then someone else becomes the playmaker. And we never had any more success against Steph than anybody else because he's so talented. And he, he just uh, – Coach McKillop did a great job coaching him. He really did. He brought him in. And I think so much is written about Steph, about the people who didn't take him. And I know – you know, Seth Greenberg has, you know, gotten lashed over the years. The best thing that happened to Steph Curry was to not go to those schools. Without question, the best thing that happened to him. He went with the coach who basically, he was turned the ball over like seven, eight times a game when he was a freshman and still played 30 minutes plus minutes. He had a coach who had great patience with him and did a great job developing. I think that is under valued many times the job Bob McKillop did with Steph in his early years. He gave him that. And, and then he's fortunate enough to go with the Warriors. Um, I remember telling somebody, a pro guy called me about Steph. He said, what do you think? And I said, he goes in the NBA. If he plays for Don Nelson or Mike D'Antoni, he'll be great. 
because they are going to allow him to play the way he wants to play. And, you know, well, he didn't play for them. He might've played for now. I don't know if he played for Nelly or not, but he, he eventually played for that philosophy. When Steve Kerr came on board, he had adopted the Mike D'Antoni philosophy with, uh, oh, what's his name? Coach the Pelicans. Jeez, uh, I can see him in my mind. Can't recall him. Uh, Appalachian State. Uh, just, just was Pelicans coached right before Stan Van Gundy. And I know who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, North Carolina's finest. Gosh, I'm embarrassed. I can't. I can see his face. Can't remember his name. Happens with me now. Uh, but he he coached that philosophy. He, he implemented their offense, and they played the up tempo ball. And you know, I wouldn't say the rest is history, but you know, Steph and, and Steph has continued to. I look at him now. He's so much stronger. He's so much more physical. He's so much more plays off his body when he shoots his foul. I mean, he shoots layups now where he didn't used to be because, you know, he didn't have that much of a body to play off of. But, you know, he is, uh, he, he's tremendous in the way he's improved. And then you see his brother who basically is, is, is continued to work at his game and has had a different journey, but is now established himself as a legitimate, you know, factor in the NBA, big time player. Yeah. So, uh, Alvin Gentry was who we were thinking of. Alvin Gentry. Oh, God almighty. I, I hope he doesn't know that I did that because I've known Alvin for a ton of years. I've visited with him on many occasions and really uh, value him as a coach. He's done a tremendous job. And uh, Alvin is uh, – but Alvin had been with Mike and he brought the, the philosophy to uh, – with Steve Kerr. And Steve's a very uh, – uh, you know, he's, I wouldn't say – he, he is not averse to that philosophy. He sees, he thinks out the box and so forth as a coach. And then you put Clay Thompson with him and wow. And, you know, here are two kids, one to play to Davidson, one to play to Washington state, not exactly, you know, places that are turning out high level talent. And these two, these two kids become legendary. They become legendary players. And, you know, Clay Thompson comes back and, Steph's got a few more years. They've got a lot of good things ahead of him. The Wiseman kid really has a lot of talent. And now he's got to be able to stay healthy, which I think has now become more and more challenge in the NBA, it seems like, because they had this fractured season here, I think really is taking its toll on everybody. And I think a lot of these guys are smart not to play in the Olympics, it, particularly if they played in the playoffs this year. Some will try, though. But, uh, you know, your body can only go so much. There's only so much tread on a tire. And you want to burn it off when it counts. And, uh, you know, the NBA, uh, the USA is going to have a great Olympic team, no matter who plays. They'll have enough guys that'll be pretty good. But, you know, it's, uh, 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 you know, just so much basketball for these guys. They need a break occasionally. I think LeBron James is a perfect example. Just gone and gone and gone. And pretty soon you just got to stop and you got to rest, even if you're a human of, of such tremendous physical abilities that he is. You know, between getting let go at Elon and landing at Penn State under Ed DeCellis as director of basketball operations, you know, you spent a year in the NBA as an advanced scout for the New Jersey Nets, uh, who had three different head coaches that season. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, did that impact your job or did the GM oversee the scouting department? No, uh, the, no the scouting is done totally different, as they do with the coaches. And uh, I, I did advanced scouting, and then I did personnel scouting in January and February. I went to see games. Obviously, North Carolina, uh, I 
I went to West Virginia one time, went up to the Big Ten tournament, which was exciting. And then the next year, I was fortunate enough to spend a year with Ed, and uh, we went to the Big Ten tournament, went to the finals, won three games, went to the finals that year. And, uh, uh, you know, he was, uh, you know, I could tell that Ed was, uh, uh, he, he just didn't feel real good about, you know, the people he was working for, AD slash president, and obviously, um, he, he, I told him, I said, people are going to think you're a visionary. You got out of Penn State before all that Sandusky stuff just exploded. And he did. And obviously, it really rained down on the president and the AD, who basically he had, uh, who just didn't give him the support he needed. And that's why I went to the Naval Academy. And uh, Europe, Missouri was a lot of fun. We had some great players. Kim English, now the head coach mm -hmm. of George Mason, he was on that team. Phil Pressy played in the NBA for a couple of years. Nice kids, really good guys. They worked for us, did a good job, very talented, quick kids. Uh, you know, we, we were a very, very small team. It was really, you know, it's one thing I, I've said about that team. I said, people would see us play, and if we were playing well, they'd talk about it. And we played well most of the time because we won 30 games. They would say, boy, you guys are really fast. And if they saw us play and we weren't playing well, they'd say, gosh, you guys are really small because our – Kim was our second biggest guy, and he was barely six five of our starters. And uh, and I said, yeah, that's, that's that's who we are. You know, we're a small team that plays fast. But and man, we came off the bench with a kid, Michael Dixon, who was a blur. I mean, he kept it going. And uh, Marcus Devins is like one of the best players in the history of Mizzou basketball. Two really, really talented kids there. They got along well, played well together, and that was a good experience. And then. Going to the Naval Academy was just really a great, great experience for me for five years. And uh, as you say, you know, Zach Fong and the challenges of going to the academy are numerous uh, and uh, academically. And uh, then obviously, you know, recruiting there when the kids have five year commitment on the backside of it. But it is such a great opportunity for kids. And, uh, you know, when they get to be 30 years old, and have served their five years or more, which they can, they'll, they'll be in a really good position financially, much better than most people who come out of go, go to college. And, and, uh, and they'll also have uh, a resume that will ensure them of getting hired because they have shown an ability to learn and function in adverse situations. And that's what the, the academy teaches them. But it was fun. It was good to coach kids like that. They did a great job. We had some good players and, uh, had good success, and uh, and Ed, I think uh, you know this past year was on the threshold of winning the conference, and his two best players got hit by contact tracing and didn't play the last three games, so they end up losing the first round of the conference tournament, and, and he has another kid who tears his ACL out of his top seven guys. He loses three of them going down the stretch, and the two contact tracing kids were never sick. Yeah. It's sort of like the Chris Paul deal. They, but they were not allowed to play because he didn't meet the protocols. And uh, so hopefully that'll be a thing in the past. Unfortunately, the point guard has uh, uh, graduated and he, he was probably the best player in the conference, one of the top players in the conference. Uh, so uh, uh, stay in contact with them, obviously root for them tremendously because I know how challenging it is for them. And also VMI, which is very similar challenges. They just don't have the commitment at the end of it, but basically they have the challenges. They say the transfer door only swings one way at these schools. <laughs> yeah. Keep me apprised of how things are going. But, but it's, it was good. I, I tell you, after that, the first year after, after uh, uh, 
the Naval Academy is one of the more interesting experiences I've ever had in coaching. It was, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do after I stepped down the first of April from Navy. Great experience there. And, and I was sitting talking to my wife about this time one morning. And I said, I can't, I don't know, what am I going to do? I, you know, I, I got to find something to do. And the phone rang. Brad Greenberg called and offered me an opportunity to be his assistant coach with the Kosovo national team. So I told him I would think about it. And of course, the first thing I did, I got on the computer and looked up Kosovo to learn as much as I could about it. And uh, they were trying to qualify for the World Cup. And so uh, the first of, uh, I guess it was July. Yeah, the first of July, I went to Pristina, Kosovo for the first time, a place that I didn't even know existed really. And, uh, you know, I had had a pretty good in-depth guy and had some really good players. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had a great experience. That, that was an incredible experience. And we were, all the guys were like 25 to 30 years old, been playing professionally at various levels. And we were playing, we were in a pool with Macedonia, which is now called North Macedonia, and Estonia mm -hmm. and Kosovo. Now, these are places that those average people in the United States don't know what you're talking about. But Estonia was a former Soviet Socialist Republic. Macedonia and Kosovo used to be parts of what was Yugoslavia. And I would tell the guys over in, in, uh, in, in Kosovo, I said, you understand, I think over 50% of the people in the United States still think Yugoslavia exists. They don't understand there is no Yugoslavia. And they go, really? And I said, oh, without question, without question. And it's just, uh, we're not as attuned to global activities, I think, in the United States as we need to. Anyway, Kosovo was uh, a 95% Muslim community, country, been beset by war with Serbia. And Serbia, obviously, as we all know, has produced great basketball players over the years. And, um, but Kosovo and Serbia, they don't get along at all, at all. And so uh, they're never going to play basketball or anything else with each other. Uh, but uh, we played, I think, about eight friendly games, which they call them friendly games of which we had two fights and two of them <laughs> got, got kicked out when we were in Austria, two kids got kicked out. And then uh, we also played Slovakia a couple games. And then we went to Albania to play. We had another fight. And, uh, uh, and these were just friendly games. They had no bearing on anything, came home, practice. And then we opened up and we were fortunate enough to beat Macedonia in our first game. And the way they do it in Europe, is you play two teams home and away. And then they go, if it's a split series, they go to the different point differential in the games. So we were fortunate enough to beat Macedonia. Then we went out and played Estonia and they clocked us a tremendous thing. And then we came home and you shoot me, then we played Macedonia on the second half of that trip and, and they beat us. And actually they beat us more than we beat them. So now we come back and we're playing Estonia, which is won all their games. We're playing them at home, and it, it was like it was like the end of a movie. Uh, you know, you're watching a basketball movie. If we lose the game, we're out. Brad and I are going home, to the United States. And if we win the game, obviously we're still going home. But we we now are in the World Cup, which is quite an achievement for a country like Kosovo. Makes you one of the top 32 teams in the country in the world, rather. So the score's tied with about a minute to go. We come down 
and the ball gets kicked out and the kid hits a two pass, you know, penetration, kick to the corner, back to the wing, bangs a three. We're up to three. Now we come down, they turn the ball over. We come back down, but we're going to have to shoot it because of the time. And we're not going to be able to hold the ball. So we come down another thing, penetration, kick to the corner. This kid hits a three. And we win the game by six points against a really good Estonia team. And so that put us in the World Cup. So now FIBA, which is the Basketball Federation, decides they're going to play in the middle of the year like they do in soccer. They do this in soccer. So they're going to do it in basketball this first time. So we go back over in November. Well, now the good news is you qualify for the World Cup. The bad news is you qualify for the World Cup. And now we're playing Lithuania, Hungary, and Poland. We're in the pool with them. So we'll play each one of those teams twice over the course of the year. So we play host Lithuania and are tied at the half. And I remember Brad and I walking off the court and we're going, geez, maybe we got a chance. We got destroyed in the second half. Lithuania is one of the best five teams in the world. And they just run. They got all these six, seven kids and they just stream up and down, shoot threes and there. And, you know, you, I'm not, and they got like a half a dozen guys in the NBA not even playing because the game is being played in Thanksgiving right around November. And so we then go to Hungary and that trip took forever because of the weather and everything. And we lose there a game we could have won. We had, but now we're, our kid, we couldn't get our best kids in because the teams were reluctant to let their teams play in the middle of the year. They don't want to, they kept, oh, he's hurting. He needs to stay here in rehab. He can't come. So then, then we went back in uh, February, went to Poland, and it was one of the most emotional, one of the most incredible memories I'll ever have in basketball. We go over to play in Poland, and the gym is packed. And all these countries have different colors. And the country in, in Poland, it's red. They were red and white. And they wear these things around their necks. And you see it at soccer sometimes. They look like a neck scarf. Uh-huh. except they got the name of the country on and the gym is packed in Poland we're going to play them and of course part of the, you've seen international basketball you know they sing the anthem and so forth so they do that the international our team do the anthem then they introduce Poland's whole team they do the anthem no music they people just start singing and the building is shaking as these people are singing the Polish national anthem is the most unbelievable thing. I was like astounded. I said, we are really in big trouble. <laughs> these guys are going to be so inspired. And they were. Poland's very good. Coached by a, a guy from the United States, American coach, a nice guy. And uh, we, we lost that game. And then uh, tragically, we had a kid killed in an automobile accident right before we played our games in June. And, and that's sort of threw a damper over the other thing. I stayed over three more weeks and took the U-20 team to Bulgaria for a tournament. But it, it was quite an experience. We played Beckettsan and uh, uh, Moldova and, uh, you know, countries that uh, uh, Armenia was there. I mean, it was, uh, it was an interesting experience. Very, very illuminating to me. Things I, parts of the, uh, unbelievably educational. Just unbelievably educational. That's wild. And I know you were awarded the Guardians of the Game Award from the NABC. 
uh, you know, during your time at, at Navy. And then obviously uh, the team increased its win total in each of the five years you were there. Um, and you talk about going to coach overseas. Yeah. You, did you have the itch to get back to college? Um, you know, obviously you, you joined Danny Manning's staff at Wake Forest, uh, Wake Forest for your third stint. Uh, you know, what made you end your retirement? Did you just have that itch to coach or yeah, did it, what, or know, was it told, Wake Forest being a special yeah, place? Yeah, I, I, I told, you know, someone the other day, I said, I think I'm better at unretiring than I am at retiring. You know, I said the Kosovo experience was unbelievable. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, but the problem was I'd been over there and back four times in a year. Mm. And each trip basically is like 12 hours because you have to fly somewhere in the, new, in the United States. And you got to fly to somewhere before you fly to Kosovo. Uh, and, and so it, it, it's a long trip. It, it, and, you know, I just said, I, so I, I can't do it again. I need a break maybe in the following summer, but I can't come back in the fall or anything. People were really nice. I had a great experience. Unbelievable people. Unbelievable people. Uh, like 50% of the population is under the age of 30. I mean, it's it just, it's gonna, it's an exploding country. It's gonna be really significant here before long because it's just growing and it's just been so beat up by the war with Serbia and so forth. And uh, it's just coming out of that, but people moved away and they're not moving back. And that's, that's kept the country back, but got some good luck. People in Yugoslavia love basketball. That means Croatia, Montenegro, Serbia, Bosnia, Slovenia. Slovenia, obviously, we all know about Slovenia now because of who? Luka Doncic is Slovenian. And uh, the Serbs, obviously, are very well represented in the NBA. Kosovo, no. Uh, and Macedonia, no. Uh, but and I researched, I said, how did this happen? So after World War II, a guy named Tito became the ruler of uh, Yugoslavia after World War II. And he put in the entire country, 40 basketball courts throughout the country, which included all those countries. And the next thing you know, basketball became the prominent sport of Yugoslavia. And a lot of countries in that area, it's team handball, track and field, swimming, you know, it, it's, it's not, I mean, it, it's not basketball. Basketball is big in Yugoslavia. It's big in Lithuania. Estonia is good basketball. And certain other countries develop uh, different other sports where they seem to excel in. So uh, uh, that had a lot to do with that. And then, and I really wasn't looking to get in. I, I was looking for something to do, I guess you could say. And we came back from, I came back from, uh, Kosovo, I believe it was probably around the first of August. And I was trying, what I was doing actually is I was going around talking with coaches and visiting with their teams. If they wanted me to come in and speak to their team, I did that at VMI, I did that some with Wes. I was at Charleston Southern, quite honestly, when Danny called me and uh, I had my phone off and uh, I got this, uh, um, I put my phone back on. I got this call from my friend, Greg Collins, a trainer there. He says, where are you? And I told him, he said, and I said, well, so-and-so, Danny, Coach Manny's trying to reach you. And I saw him a phone off. I was in, you know, I was in there talking basketball with the group and didn't want to be disturbed. Uh, so I called him and, you know, one thing led to another and I ended up joining them. It was right around the 1st of November. In fact, 
I think I came to work on Tuesday on Friday. We went down to scrimmage East Carolina. I mean, it was on. And um, uh, so, so spent two years there and obviously we struggled and it was a challenge, but again, it's a learning experience. It's a learning experience and, uh, uh, you know, still have a good relationship with the kids, stay in constant contact with Olivier Czar now. Spike spoke to him a couple of days ago about various things about his future and so forth and uh, what he's doing and, uh, you know, uh, in, in, enjoyed the kid Jalen. Uh, Jalen Horde was an interesting kid to get to know and, uh, and various other kids, you know, uh, had nothing to do with what they do with, you know, they make their decisions what they're going to do and do those things. They have people in their lives that, you know, are far much more closer to them than I am, but nevertheless, uh, I'm still interested in them and, you know, want them to have the best opportunity and, and we'll advise them when they ask. Don't, don't, don't uh, provide it, but, you know, I'm, I'm glad to talk with them about their situations when, when, when they ask. So this past year has been like everybody just trying to get to where we are today. And uh, I'm glad that we have been able to evolve through the things we have. Unfortunately, uh, coaching has been, uh, you know, uh, uh, a real challenge. Uh, Coach Phelan passed away this past week. I mean, you know, just uh, uh, a lot of bad things seem to be happening to good people. But, uh, you know, that uh, and maybe it's just because we make note of it, all those things. Coach was 92, so that's not exactly, uh, you know, he's, he's had various health problems. Young man, a gentleman who's made a great, great impact on the game. Mr. Corrigan passed away. He was a legend in the ACC. Change is occurring, obviously, at the ACC with the new commissioner coming on board. So, so there's a lot of change in, in, in college sports that you take note of. Coach, you've coached, I believe, over 50 years with college basketball. You've coached in every Power Five conference. What are some things you wish you knew earlier in your career that would have, I don't want to say made you a better coach, but, you know, things that you wish you knew that would have helped you? Gosh, that's a really good question. I never thought about it. I've always gone on the philosophy, you know, you just move forward and you, you deal with the situation as you, that you encounter. And it's never going to be a similar one. I think you learn from every, I think the one thing you learn from every situation you have, you learn from players you coach. You learn so much from the kids you coach about how to coach the next time, how to coach another kid who has a similar ability similar high points. And, you know, I've always felt the most important thing in coaching is being able to be honest with kids, to tell them honestly where they are and to hold them accountable. You know, if you're working on skills and they're walking, you got to call them out for walking. You can't, you can't not do that. You have certain ways of doing things and you have to be very demanding when you're doing individual work development, but you also have to help kids. I think kids struggle with confidence. Uh, you know, particularly bigger kids who I've, you know, I've had the good fortune to coach some kids of size and pretty good talent, but, you know, they deal with issues of confidence many times because these are people that were always the biggest kid in the class picture. Guys made fall and look at a goofy guy and they were awkward and they struggled and it was a challenge for them, but they have such a potential when you can get them to really uh, reach 
their maximum. And a lot of it is just talking to them and helping them gain confidence, whether it's making them a better free throw shooter or, uh, you know, giving them an individual move and demanding certain things of how they play and, and then holding them accountable to that. Whether it's, you know, you get the ball in the post, keep the ball off the floor, always pivot for you, whatever the rule is you give them, making sure that they follow that rule. And, uh, you know, like, uh, you, know, you know, I used to say, there's certain things as a guard, if you're a real guard, you don't let happen. Number one, you don't let someone, you know, snake the ball from you when you go by them from behind. You don't get raked from behind. You're not a real guard if people are raking you when you go by them. You got to know they can't they can't flick the ball out of your hand as a guard. If you're a real guard, you're not going to let a guy go under a ball screen and you're not going to hit him with a jump shot. You can't do that. You got to you know they, these are rules. These sorts of like silly things to say to kids. You know, I say you're going to lose your guard card. You're not going you're going to lose your card to be a guard. You know, if you don't do these things, you got to expect you you got to don't let people do these things to you. And you know. Uh, with big kids, it's always don't allow people to guard you, defend you by fouling you. Be a good free throw shooter. Because if you're not, uh, you know, people will just foul you when you get in the post, when you get an advantage and put you on the line because you're not, you know, you make 50%. You're going to make two points here or one point there. You mean, it's not even, you know, you do basic arithmetic. It's easy. You're going to foul a guy. Now you can only foul him so much, but you know, at a critical time that, that, that can be, uh, really key to the outcome of the game and uh, but you just grow and you just evolve you know as a coach and it's a uh, uh it, it, it's a good journey it, you know it, it's been fun and you know hey I, i'm be excited to do some more of it you know i don't uh, there's not any aspect of college basketball that i dislike none i enjoy the coaching i enjoy the games i enjoy the practice of teaching enjoy the recruiting i think meeting people spending time talking with them, finding out what their aspirations are, their goals. Sometimes you come out of home visits and you go, I want that kid. Or sometimes you come out and you go, wow, I really like that kid. I really, I, I tell you a great story of a kid. Uh, the year I was uh, doing the scouting, I'd, I'd go to Wake Forest see games. And I heard some things about Ish Smith, this and that and the other. And I don't know where the information came from, but you know, and, uh, you know, my, my friend, uh, Greg Collins, the athletic trainer, called me and he said, uh, would you meet with Ish Smith? It was a year that uh, Dino let go, uh, they let Dino go at, uh, at Wake. He didn't have a coach. And it's now late March. He's, you know, trying to, you know, he's trying to figure out what to do with his career. And, and I never met him. I said, well, yeah, I'll meet him and talk with him. So I went over, we went in the training room and I talked with him and, and I got such a great vibe off of him. He is absolutely one of the neatest kids that you'll ever meet. Such a nice kid. And he wanted to know, coach, will you, you know, work with me? And I said, yeah, yeah, I got no problem. I said, I only have one rule. And he goes, what's that? I said, if you ever miss without letting me know, we're done. I don't want to come to the gym and worry about you being here. And then when you're not here, I said, that only happened one time. I said, you know, if you want to call me and you can't make it, I got that. But I want to come to the gym and all of a sudden be sitting around and you not show up or not call or anything. I think we have to at least have that kind of a relationship. And he goes, yeah, no problem. We met, I think, 25 times that spring. He would call, we'd go meet a gym. We met wherever. 
or we can find a gym sometimes at Wake Forest in the P building, sometimes over on the, uh, the Miller Center, uh, uh, a couple high schools, wherever, and he'd work out. Sometimes he'd bring uh, uh, Al Farouk with him. But the whole thing about it, the meeting with him, I got the vibe off of him was so good. Just had such a great feeling about the kid. And that's his great quality, other than his skill and his talent. is just, just has an incredible personality. And he'll probably go into coaching, college or NBA coaching. And, you know, I told him, I said, you should keep a journal because you're going to have a really incredible journey. And when you finish your NBA career, you'll have a book because you'll play with all these various teams and you'll get waived and you're going to get cut and you're going to get sent to the G League and all this other stuff. And in the end, you'll triumph. You really will. Just keep your head up because a lot of kids quit. They get tired of it. Nah, I can't do this. I'm not going to do this. I'm tired of it. And he basically has shown great. Now, first of all, he has a really, really good talent. Great ball speed. His shooting has gotten better. And he is absolutely a fabulous teammate. Fabulous teammate. Being a good person and getting along with people is very, very undervalued skill. And it's something that a lot of kids don't understand. You know, it's Hubie Brown said to kids, he said, you know, you better learn to say hello before it's time to say goodbye. And, you know, that, that issues the guy who always says hello. He always says, well, some of these other guys, they don't think they're going to say hello. They're not going to say it until someone says it to them. And they're the ones that, you know, it's time to say goodbye, pal. You're gone. Or you got to come in. you got to be effervescent. you got to be, you got to be selling yourself every minute. And uh, because it's a business, pro basketball is a business. College basketball is a business. And, and, and kids have got to project that, you know, in those situations to make, and helps them become successful because it helps people believe in who they are what they want to do and what goals they want to have but you know that, that that's sort of where you learn from kids and how you get vibes off kids and so forth which i think are so essential that's so true you know coach we've come to the segment i call start bench cut i give you three things you start one bench one and cut one first one nike adidas under armor oh nike is obviously what i've done most of uh I think Under Armour is uh, Adidas. I don't have any experience with Under Armour. Some experience, but uh, I think their experience has become a challenge now. They, they've they've got themselves sort of in a mess. But Nike, I, you know, with Nike, what's really been unique about them is I remember when they weren't around, and Converse was what was happening in the shoe business. Converse was the ones who gave you a free pair of shoes. That's what you got. Mm-hmm. You got an extra, you got a free pair of sneakers every year as an assistant coach. Head coach might get two pairs of sneakers. Uh, okay, Biscuitville, Bojangles, Chick-fil-A, breakfast. Biscuitville. Probably, be, I, I haven't done any of them. I haven't done any of them, to tell you the truth. Biscuitville. Who's the other one? Bojangles and Chick-fil-A. Yeah, yeah. I have, I, I've never had breakfast at any of those three places. Okay, no, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hoop dirt, verbal commits, transfer portal. Oh gosh, hoop dirt's pretty good. That's 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 a really interesting concept that someone's come up with. Uh, 
Uh, transfer portal, I'd cut that one. <laughs> I think that's a mistake. Uh, so uh, what was the other one, third one? Verbal commits. Verbal commits are uh, – then, then I'd cut that one also too, because that doesn't mean a lot. I, you know, I, I see where guys make a verbal commitment at one school and then still take visits at another school. I don't understand. I think people struggle with what a commitment is. Yeah. I love the word decommitment because it, if you're making a commitment, how are you decommitting from something? Yeah. It's like, you know, you have a, you know, they said, I'm committing, you know, I'm committed. I only got, I'm, I'm just going to take two more visits after I commit you. What? 110% committed. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, uh, Coach, who are three guests I should have on the podcast? Well, I don't know who you have had, but uh, have you had Coach Odom? I have not. Yeah, no. yeah, he's good. He's good, you know. And, uh, uh, wow. Interesting, interesting guys. Uh, I've had a lot of the weight guys from the Danny Manning era. I've had a John Perry. I've had Aaron Goodman. Hmm. Danny, Danny Earl be good. You get him on Dan Earl's good. Be good for him because it's, you know, good recruiting, I guess, you know, if people are looking, he's a VMI guy, which is a hard place to recruit. Um, gosh, almighty. That's uh uh, Paul Brazza. You ever had Paul Brazza on? No. Uh, where's he at? He's the assistant commissioner for basketball at the ACC right there in okay. Greensboro. Call the ACC office. Okay, definitely. Yeah, it'd be interesting to get his insight. He basically oversees the tournament scheduling. He do, you, you remember Fred Barakat? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what he does. He does Fred's job. He's just not as visible or out there as Fred was. He okay. does it a different way. You know, he's a more low key guy, but that, that's a job he does. And it's uh, not only is it, uh, oh, and he also uh, it, it technically he oversees officiating. Uh, Brian Kersey would be great to get. Yeah. Brian Kersey does the officiating. He lives in uh, Northern Virginia, but he's in and out of the ACC office some as well there in Greensboro. What advice do you have for younger coaches either trying to work their way up the ranks? or even coaches who are trying to get that first head coaching experience? Well, you know, I, I think uh, the head coach, you know, it's two different issues. You know, you're trying to work yourself up the ranks, as you say. I always advise guys, take jobs where you have to do a lot of things. You know, I'm really opposed to taking jobs where you become, you get some title and you end up going, you know, going for coffee and stuff like that, going and check classes. I mean, if you have a chance, I would rather be, I would rather you be the third guy or the second guy at a division two job than the eighth guy at a division one job. You're not going to learn anything doing that stuff. Now you're going to get to fly on nice planes. You're going to get nice sweatsuits and nice sneakers and nice coaching shirts and everything. But in, you only, your window, you have to grow. You have to develop. You have to put yourself in situations Really, you have to be in situations where you can do recruiting. You, you understand the importance. You got to be out on the road. You got to be mixing, and then when you're out there, you got to do a good job. But uh, and you can't be looking for jobs. You got to be doing a job. Most 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 times, you know, guys will be coached. You know, they'll say, "Geez, that kid really does a great job." Well, that means he's probably not out there trying to get a job. 
Now, by doing a great job, he enhances his ability to get a job, get the next job. Uh, the, the, the head coaching situation is really challenging because the people who make the decisions, you don't have an ability to interact with on a normal situation because those decisions are made by athletic directors. And, you know, you can't really, you know, interact with them because you never know who's going to have the positions open. And then when the jobs are open, they're getting inundated by so many people. Uh, you, you just have to be fortunate enough to know people that they'll take calls from. Uh, that, that's a key thing. And I think you have to really evaluate where your energies go. You know, I mean, you know, it's like guys would be upset when they'll say, well, I called so-and-so and he said, you know, if you can get an interview, I'll help you. Well, you know, it's guys that are high level coaches. <laughs> You're asking a guy to make a call to try to get you involved with the job. Now, we all know that when a job comes open, he, the guy will usually have two or three people. He's in his mind already. And you're not one of those two or three people. Now, you may want to be four or five or six, but you got to get yourself in that way some way. Uh, uh, and, and then if you get an interview, then that's when you want to use the best guy you got, whoever that is, if it's the uh, you know, best name you got. But, you know, sometimes there's situations, Mike Boynton, for instance, Mike Boyd's situation is a perfect example. You know, here's a young man who basically, you know, got an opportunity. It's not an opportunity he earned. Most guys who get jobs at that level have got 20 years invested in basketball. Michael doesn't have that much invested as a coach, but he's there at the moment. Then he goes through the door and he does a good job. So now he has solidified his position because he just happened to be in the right situation at the right time. Whereas a lot of other guys, maybe more talented or more experienced than him, will never be in a situation like that. And they keep trying to get jobs and, and are always on the outside, whereas Michael just stumbled into the job. But I'm really impressed. He's hired uh, Scott uh, Sutton, the former head coach. He's got Barry Hinton working as a former head coach, which speaks a lot to his security, being secure enough to do that, which is great to see. So, so, the, so that's, that's very good for him. Uh, There's it, just no formula for it all. It just, the, just uh, uh, the, the way things, you know, Wes Miller getting, becoming the head coach of UNC Greensburg. You know, he, 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 I remember him calling me and telling me, he said, I'm just not going to stay at High Point any longer. I just, this is not the right environment for me at this particular time. And so, and, and so uh, he got the job at Greensboro thinking, you know, that'd be a great place for him to be right there in his hometown and everything. And boom, boom, boom. Next thing you know, he's head coach. Mike DeMend is, you know, want to go back to Dallas and has just sort of had enough. And uh, so he leaves and he becomes the head coach and uh, hires Mike Roberts who went to New Hampton with, with the prep school with, you know, it's just, uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's strange the way all those things fit together sometimes. And, you know, the most important thing is you must do a good job wherever you are. If you're on the road, you have to be professional. You have to be a guy who's really working hard. You can be friendly and all that, but you have to have a great work ethic. You have to have a, you, you have to have a function. You're not out there to meet people. You're out there to, you know, evaluate players and determine who's going to be best in your situation. Coach, I, I can't thank you enough for being so generous with your time, for being so well, open and honest. Um, 
you know, again, I know, uh, you know, we don't talk every day or whatnot, but I, I've admired you from afar for a long time. I appreciate what, what you've done at the places you've been at and the, the lives you've impacted. Uh, you truly are a legend of the game. No, oh, you're very kind. You're very kind. I, I wish you good luck with this. Thanks for listening to the Beyond the Box Score podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, leave reviews, and rate five stars.